Hello, and thank you for joining us from wherever you are. This is the SBS Replay podcast from the New York University School of Professional Studies Student Council. Welcome to Season 3. This week, we are joined by the Dean of the NYU School of Professional Studies, Angie Kamath. Dean Kamath has had a distinguished career in higher education and workforce development, drawing from her prior experience in various fields, including IT, finance, healthcare, and municipal government. Her Students First, Employees First approach has greatly lent itself to success in her previous roles. She was appointed as the Dean of NYU SBS in July 2021. The original session was recorded on Zoom and was hosted by Catalina Mejia. Let's get started. So as I mentioned before, my name is Catalina Mejia. I am the current Graduate Student Council President and I am extremely excited to be moderating today's session with an incredible guest. Just as an FYI to everybody, I wanna encourage you all to type any questions that you may have as they come up during the session and I'll be sure to include them into our discussion. Out further ado, with us today is a very special guest. We have Dean Angie Kamath, who is an established higher education and workforce development professional with prior experience in multiple fields, including IT, finance, healthcare, and municipal government. So that is quite the resume already. And her passion to pave a better way for every institution she is part of is clearly reflected in every conversation she has. I'm sure today's will be no exception. And having joined SPS over the summer, what better way to get a sneak peek into her plans for the community and to get to know her than to ask her directly. So please join me in welcoming Dean Angie as she takes us through her journey of being a first-generation American, how that has shaped her outlook on the world and influenced the decisions that she has made that has led her to this very moment. Hi, Dean Angie. Welcome. Happy hi, Catalina. How are you? I'm doing great. And hi to everybody. This is really awesome. It's been really fun to see everybody in the 70s 12th building. I'm heading up actually to Midtown later this afternoon. So hopefully I'll say hi to some folks there as well. But I'm doing great and very much excited to be part of this. I love that. I love that. So let's get right into it. From my experience working with you already, one of the things that has characterized you so far is your enthusiasm to get involved in a further capacity. So how has your experience been so far at SPS and what parallels have you been able to make from your experience starting at NYU, obviously as the dean, but how could that relate to maybe students who are also starting their SPS journey this semester? Great question. I'm having a ball. (laughs) Every day is new. Every day is different. I was talking to someone. I mean, we have 37 different degree programs. And so I feel like we've got 37 different communities. And then within each degree program, we have so many different types of students who are New Yorkers, who are from other parts of the U.S., who are international and really so excited just to kind of learn more about our programs, more about our students and really thinking about, and I think a lot about what do our students need? Something to answer kind of the second part of your question in my last job in terms of just connecting kind of the dots. And and I, I was thinking about that this morning as I was walking in, I feel like my mind has like all these pinging ideas and it's like almost, you know, I'm always pairing ideas. So it's like, if you imagine like little magnets pinging around in my head and then two stick together. And then I send an email. I'm like, what do you think about this? And so I'm, I'm constantly just trying to like, 
connect dots. And I actually think that's one of the pieces that I most love about just kind of work and being in, in kind of complex environments where there's lots of things going on, connecting dots. And so one of pieces that I'm super interested in, when I was at the City University of New York, we worked with our professional schools, our graduate programs, our undergrads, community colleges. We really tried to flip the script and talk less about kind of are you college ready? Are you ready for your degree? And more is, is the school student ready? And is the school really ready for taking on and working with and supporting and figuring out what students need? And I have loved the notion of really challenging myself, challenging our staff, challenging our faculty to answer the question, are you student ready? We'll get more into kind of what that could mean, but very excited by the, just the diversity in every shape and form of our school, our students, our programs, our faculty, our staff. Very interested in this notion of are we as student ready as we could be? And then I'd say the last piece that I've done in a lot of my jobs is just listening to people and listening to people at kind of all different levels of the organization and trying to figure out how to get more voices on the front line into the actual conversation, into defining what is interesting, what we should be doing more of, what we should be doing less of. And so that's, you know, I I haven't figured that out yet, but it's on my mind a lot. And I'm pretty excited. And I've done that in past jobs where often, you know, when you're sitting in a leadership position, I can have the things that I think are important and you always have to test it out. I mean, to all of our marketing students, you always have to test it out to sort of see if any of the hypotheses of that, that I'm thinking about actually resonate or real or even the question to be answered, or if there's a whole series of other questions that are better. And so I'm pretty excited to start, you know, on that journey and Sue Weiss and Teresa Gargiulo and others, Rachel Frint are going to be on that journey with me as folks that are our leadership, right? In terms of thinking about answering this question of, are we student ready? And what could we be doing to be more student ready here? Absolutely. I love that. And you touched on so many points that I'm sure we'll delve into later in the conversation, but I do want to point out, I know you said, you know, you don't have the answer to that yet. And you have all of these great staff and faculty members to help you, but also don't forget us, the students and students and alumni and have been so happy to have that opportunity already. So kind of rewinding a little bit, right? Obviously you're the SPS Dean right now, but Tying back to the experience that you've had prior to this moment, how would you say all of the distinct verticals, right, and backgrounds that you've been able to touch on in your professional career have prepared you to take on this role and have a different perspective there? Good question. So I know that you didn't ask me to go back to my childhood, but I will take, I'll I'll go back there for a minute. Even better. Um, So I, I have always, I think a lot that my lens that I use today in terms of what I think is most important is how to help all of our students, no matter what point at which they're coming to us in their careers, how to get them kind of launched, thriving, succeeding, and exceeding expectations in terms of their career trajectories. That's what I most care about. When I think about, I rewind about how, where did it all start? 10-year-old Angie in suburban Long Island with my bicycle, tossing out newspapers on my paper route. And what was great about that, and I didn't love that job, but I liked the paycheck. And with that paycheck, my dad made me, he made me, though I learned to love it, he made me start investing in stocks. And again, little Angie, you know, little four foot Angie, riding my bike, delivering newspapers. My dad drilled into my head, financial independence, invest your little $10 paycheck into the stock market so that you can do whatever you want to do, young lady, in life, because you are going to save and you are going to be able to make great choices and have a real choice filled life. And so that is like literally, I think, a big part of who I am, both the influence from my parents, this notion of 
just work hard and you can kind of have a choice-filled life by having resources, opportunity, access to lots of things. I have amassed all these different experiences in finance and IT and higher ed and nonprofit management. And, you know, I guess as I think about kind of how do I want to apply that? I think that was the question. How do I apply that to SPS? You know, regardless of the sector, I'm pretty sector agnostic. I think there's something interesting to learn in every sector. But at the end of the day, I think, again, whether you're a private company or a social impact kind of nonprofit, you're trying to find value, right? You're trying to provide and offer a value proposition to whoever you're interacting with, right? It's not a surprise that in undergrad, I focused in on entrepreneurship. And I remember those classes. I was a TA for that class. And I remember vividly, find a need and fill it. Do your market research and find a niche. Like that's literally what entrepreneurship is about. And so for me, I think I've amassed all these different kind of experiences only to now be quite convinced that the sectors that one operates in, they're all more similar than different. And what we all are trying to do in whatever role is find a need and fill it, do some research, find a niche and have a real value proposition that's unique and that's important. And so that's, I think, what I bring to those two perspectives. I deeply believe I want every single one of our students and graduates and alumni to have choice-filled lives, whatever choices they choose to pursue. And I think all of us as administrators, as faculty, as staff, as students, as alumni, as companies, need to kind of really make sure we know what our value proposition is. And so as I'm thinking about SPS, I think our value prop is we are training the future, the workforce of today and tomorrow. And, you know, I'm going to be pretty hell bent on making sure that our students are amassing incredibly insightful, interesting, exploratory, coveted career development experiences while they're here. And for some people that might like look like an internship, for other folks, it might be expanding kind of a really great network. For others, it might be taking part in a capstone or a practicum. For others, it might be, you know, doing, doing some coursework with, you know, really excellent professors that really kind of lights a spark. But those are the things that I think about. That's great. You mentioned two things in particular that I want to go further into, and that's leading a choice-filled life, right? A teaching that your father left you, and then also you being sector agnostic. And those two things remind me a lot of our SPS community, because under this one brick umbrella, we have all different disciplines. We have real estate, marketing, PR, human resources, right? And there are so many choices with what we can do within the community. So as you think of your current journey in continuing to find your place and making your mark here at SPS. What advice do you have for students that are trying to do the same? You all are very sophisticated, whether you're in an undergraduate program, whether you're in a master's program, I've been really impressed with everyone. And so the advice that I would give is advice that I take myself. It's advice that some folks gave to me. I actually exactly remember where I got it. Years ago, there's, it's a women in tech conference called the Grace Hopper conference. I don't know if folks know who Grace Hopper was, but she's like coined to be like the creator of computer science. She was someone who worked, I want to say in, in the military, for sure, the US military, I want to say the Navy. And she is kind of credited with starting code when she was in the military. And so the Grace Hopper celebration is this kind of big women in tech, very girl power conference that I went to, I don't know, at this point, maybe 10 years ago. And there I went to a session and the session and the advice that I would give to folks, this advice that I got, and I've actually held pretty true to it, is everyone should have a board of directors. And so I think about our super sophisticated students here at SPS, and I think each of you should have a board of directors. And if you think about a company, right, or a nonprofit, a board of directors 
what do you have? You have someone who knows finance, you have someone who knows partnerships, you know, say you have someone who knows marketing, you have someone who knows community, you have someone who, you know, is just a trusted, good kind of listener and advisor. The advice that I'd give to folks is you all, and, and you don't have to be friends. You don't necessarily have to have mentors that are your fanciest professors. You can have a board of directors that's made up of all sorts of people, folks on staff, folks, um, colleagues, peers, maybe some faculty, maybe kind of others and develop your board of directors. You, you will need this board of directors for your entire life. They'll be your sounding board for ideas, for opportunities, for things that you're nervous about. I liked it a lot better. And again, I love mentors. I've gotten where I've gotten because of mentors. Everyone should have lots of mentors, but I love this notion of have a board of directors. And like, literally I have asked people to be on my personal board of directors. And it's a little bit goofy, but the notion of, to me, it's a little less awkward than saying, I'm interested in you being a mentor. And again, I have said that and I've had that said to me, totally nothing wrong with that. It's actually totally appropriate at different levels. But for me, I like this notion that I learned at this Grace Hopper celebration to sort of say, develop your board of directors. It's actually totally important. And I think as it relates to choices on your board of directors, have someone who represents different areas, right? So if you're, you know, if you're someone who's interested in sports and business, maybe marketing and sports and business, maybe a little bit of finance here, have people on your board of directors that represent all of that, right? Because I think everyone has a different point of view. That's incredibly important, sometimes contradictory, sometimes reinforcing, but always helpful. Catalina, I feel like you're such a good interviewer and I think I'm going all over the place. So rein me in if I'm going too far. Okay. You know, you mentioned something in one of my previous questions that I didn't touch on your childhood, but now about to, I want to know what you wanted to be when you grew up, when you were growing up and how that compares to the role that you have now. Oh, goodness. I wanted to be an architect. I love the notion of building things and creating things. I come from a family of engineers, so that didn't feel so, so far afield to me. My dad still lives in, in my childhood home. And so every once in a while, whenever I go home, I like just for kicks, I'll go through like some old, you know, boxes and find funny things. There's a all about me that probably I did in about second or third grade. And it said things you dislike, things that you like. And in my life, I liked skyscrapers because I wanted to be an architect. I liked taxi cabs. I think I loved coming into New York City and the glamour of being in a taxi cab. And I liked ice cream. I like puppies. I still really like beautiful buildings. <laughs> I don't love cabs. I like to walk or bike. I love ice cream and I love puppies. On my dislike, and this is where it gets to knowing yourself, and I really think that we are who we are when we're born and we just kind of get a bit more refined as time goes on. The things I didn't like mosquitoes, hate them. I get welts. I'm that person that mosquitoes love my blood. And I wrote, and this was so interesting to me, long story. Here's the punchline. I wrote, I hate arrogant people, which I find to be so interesting that I used that word as a second grader. And I wrote a little picture with a a grumpy face person. And I wrote arrogant people. And I don't remember the other pieces, but I was like, wow, I truly am the exact same person. I like building things. Again, in this case, I love building teams. I love kind of being in a school where we're building programs. I love the humanizing effect of ice cream and puppies. I dislike one of my triggers. I I have really thick skin around so many things. One of my triggers is arrogant people. I will, my blood pressure will go up when there are folks who use power and privilege for all the wrong reasons. And it's still who I am today. And so it all comes back full circle. Why do I think choice-filled lives are important? Having enough access to opportunity, having enough access to be always thinking about what do we, what do you offer a value to the world? It's because I don't want folks to have to deal with the nonsense and noise that can come when you're not in control of your future, when you're not in control of who you 
associate with, when you're not in control of who you have and give power to and take kind of authority and take direction from. And so to me, it's all very similar. And it's it's interesting. I've got two kids, a teenager, Soraya is 13 and my son, Kieran is 11. And it is awesome to watch little people grow up because I think I could have named their personality when they were probably about three or four, when I started really seeing them interact with people and kids at daycare And they're the exact same people. And I can sort of look forward and imagine what they're going to be like as adults. And they're just going to be slightly bigger versions of themselves. Those values and what they find interesting and what they like to do. I think for all of us, I kind of think that we were formed pretty well (laughs) early. And and we just kind of, you know, start to just refine and, and discover ourselves a little bit more. Some discover ourselves quicker than others. But I think it's sort of all there from a pretty young age. Speaking of your kids, so when you and I touched base in preparation for this session, you mentioned as part of your personal mission, you wanted to be an example to them and that you wanted to show them what it means to be a leader and a decision maker. And you've been very vocal in other aspects of your time here at SPS about the importance of leadership at all levels. There are tons of leadership opportunities, but that can be overwhelming for some people. So what do you have to say to those who have interest in starting that leadership journey but aren't sure kind of where to hone in on their skills? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, there's sort of two answers. I think an inquisitive mind in so many ways, being inquisitive and being able to kind of just ask questions and be curious, that's a leadership quality. I mean, that's really like leadership superpower. Nothing could be more important than a really inquisitive mind. And so that's, you know, asking why, like, why do we do that? Why don't we do this? What's the reason behind that? Why couldn't we do this? That's leadership. (laughs) Just, you know, not accepting the status quo is leadership. Questioning the status quo is leadership. Questioning why we do things is leadership. And so I feel like I really wouldn't underestimate, like that's where it starts. And then I think the next step is choosing to act on it or not. And again, choosing to act on it, we don't all have to be kind of picket holding kind of activists. Some of us are, but you don't have to do that. Taking it from kind of asking the questions could be, you know, the next step is talking about it with others, raising, you know, the issue to others. It could be solving for it. It could be doing a GoFundMe crowdsourcing site to kind of fundraise to do something about like there's all steps of it, but leadership doesn't always have to be president of the club, but leadership is being president of the club, but it doesn't always have to look like that. Pulling together one other student to talk to a professor after class on, I've got an idea. I have an internship and this happened all the time at CUNY. And it's so interesting with our faculty. Sometimes faculty don't want to be told what to do. I'm sure that maybe you see that, maybe you don't, but faculty will listen to students. And so often I would ask students who'd come to me in in my role, sort of saying, I really wish we could learn this new language, R, I think at the time in a stats class or in a data science class. And I was like, that's great. You need to tell that professor. And lo and behold, those professors would start incorporating training R in data science and stats classes. And so that's activism, (laughs) that's leadership. And so there's just so many different ways where you can ask the question and act on it. And I do think key part of leadership is communication. It's a big goal that I have for the school. I haven't, again, quite figured out, but from a student perspective, y'all get inundated with NYU emails, SPS emails, and emails from your divisions. I've heard it. All of us are inundated with that. And so I have to figure out with all of you how to be better about communication But being able to kind of ask questions and identify problems and then communicate what you're hearing, seeing, thinking, ideating about, that's leadership. So that would be kind of what I would say are good ways to start to build that muscle and really important. That's so true. And I know that because I get this, you know, all the time from peers and from faculty members. And there's this common, I think something very important that you said is leadership looks very different for each individual, right? And there's this common misconception that 
you have to be perfect and everything has to go out without a hitch when in reality, part of the process is making mistakes and learning, which leads me to your motto, which is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. So can you elaborate a little bit on that and how you live by that? I will start by saying that's for me and that's what works for me. Right. And, you know, there are perfectionists in the world and thank God, because there are our brain surgeons and, you know, folks that like need to be incredibly detail oriented or they will not do a good job in their kind of craft or vocation. And so just to say that this is for me, not letting perfect be the enemy of, of the good is really important. I like to do things. I like to try things out. Ali, I see that. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think throughout COVID, we've started, started to learn monotasking and multitasking. There are people that are really good at both. And by golly, we wouldn't want to live in a world where everyone was multitasking because I feel like nothing would ever get done. <laughs> and if we lived in a world with only monotaskers, probably nothing would ever get done, right? And so long way to say, for me, how do I live this kind of perfect not being the enemy of the good? I think, and I say this, I'm looking at Teresa Gargiulo, who's kind of in my line of state, and we, she and I have talked about this a lot. The first step is the hardest. So I'm sorry to speak in cliches, but sometimes the first step is the hardest step to take, right? And so I like to get people talking about kind of how to solve problems or how to think about kind of new opportunities. I like to get people to start acting on things. I like to encourage folks to just try something. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to kind of come up with a smart idea. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be the smartest kid in the room. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to come up with big new startup idea. I think we just put a lot of pressure on ourselves. I think something for me about not being afraid to say, and I've said this to a lot of folks who I work with, I'm going to come up with 10 ideas and most of them are going to be bad. One or two will be gems. Some of them will be the right idea for the wrong time. But for me, innovation and progress happens by talking, by getting a lot of ideas out, by starting something and learning from it. I love the phrase, and again, I'm speaking cliche state, so sorry, but no friends or enemies, just teachers. Like I just think everything is a teachable moment. And I think for me, once I started to really embrace that everyone's a teacher, the person who you love working with, the person who's kind of annoying, the person who's always at you, the person who's always being lovely and compassionate, everyone's a teacher. I don't really have any favorites. And I say that, and I think it connects back to just try something, just listen to as many voices, have this board of directors that has all sorts of people with different perspectives. It's like all versions of the same thing, which is putting myself out there and listening to a lot of people, putting myself out there and asking a lot of questions, putting myself out there and trying a bunch of things, knowing everything's not going to be perfect. It goes back to this notion that it's not a surprise that I gravitated towards kind of entrepreneurship studies in undergrad. I just think to me, I like to build things and you can't do that unless you're willing to try things and you can't try things. If you're living in an echo chamber for yourself or kind of in a vacuum, you have to just kind of get out there and talk. So long answer to kind of what it looks like and how I, when I say it's my model, it really is something. And quick, small aside, my first job after grad school, after, you know, starting out in finance, I kind of knew I wanted to save the world. So I went and got a master in public policy. I then had my first job running a nonprofit. So as an executive director of Streetwise Partners, which was kind of mentoring and job training organization. And I locked heads with my, with the founder and the head of the board. Ran our first wine and cheese gala. We had like maybe 200 people. We raised like $30,000. I was so pleased. I made a little invitation on a PowerPoint. And I think there, it wasn't a typo, but there were like two fonts going on in the, in the invitation. And they flipped out at me. And I got so angry. And I had this conversation. I was like, okay, you can yell at me because I didn't have a perfect invitation or we could actually 
be excited that we had our first one and cheese gallon raised $30,000. And I said, you know, sometimes good enough is good enough. And we had this very interesting conversation where he said, good enough is not good enough. And I was like, wow, it was like this flashbulb moment for me. I was like, no, this is the wrong organization for me because they expect me to be perfect. They're not embracing mistakes. They're not getting the bigger picture and I need out. And I literally like within a couple of months, the bond was broken. And I learned something really big about myself, which is sometimes good enough is good enough. If you're trying to make progress and trying to move mountains. And sometimes we need the alley weavers of the world to be perfectionists because she's going to do something that will require perfection and she will find the right fit for her. But I realized that about myself. And again, it goes back to that little second grade trigger of, I don't like arrogant people. (laughs) To me, I was like, wow, that kind of comes back to There's some things that I can abide by and some things that I just can't. And again, I think those are decisions that all of you will make, which is we can be flexible on some things, but when something kind of like starts to be really knocking up against your values and what you think is important for me, there was a bigger picture here. It wasn't about having two fonts on a PowerPoint. It was like, this is a cultural fit. That's not going to work. And I'm going to lock heads more times than not. And I need to find a better fit for me. And so that was one of those moments that was, I, I really will always remember. That's a great point. And going back to what you mentioned of everything being a teachable moment, especially when it comes to professional experiences, right? And when we navigate the professional ladder, it can be tricky, right? Because that's how you learn what you're willing to bend on and what you're not. And actually the next question is from one of our DSC council members, Varsha, who I, I know is in here somewhere. And she wants to know about whether or not you can speak a little bit on the importance of honesty while climbing the professional ladder and staying true to yourself and kind of finding the balance between doing what you need to do for the role while not compromising those aspects. Oh, good, good questions. I'd say two things. And again, this is advice that works for me and and folks will make different decisions. After that role, so my first executive director role, I have always, I think, tried to follow leaders in my kind of future roles. I guess NYU is a little bit different in that I got recruited. It was my first job that I've been recruited for in a while, but I tried to follow leaders. And in answer to the question about being honest, as you're kind of rolling up, I think, you know, for me, I always followed leaders that I thought had high, high levels of integrity. I've also followed leaders that where I probably had some questions in terms of just their style and their management. And so for me, in terms of being honest and being, as I was advancing, I've been in situations, I'm sure you all either have or will be in situations where in my little bubble of a team, I felt good. I felt like everyone had the integrity. I could be really honest with them and we could kind of drive high, even if maybe upper levels of management, maybe, you know, we're just different in terms of making choices that we would. And I think as I have progressed, I've understood the importance of making sure that that leader at the top is someone who I deeply, deeply respect and that she or he is someone who makes mistakes and owns up to it, someone who can understand and be pretty transparent about things. And I don't think everyone has those choices or can make those choices or has those opportunities earlier in a career. But I would say from an advice perspective, I have learned that I need to make sure that I am enamored with the person at the top, that I come to work every day and wanting them to look good, wanting to support them, wanting to make them be more effective. I probably had less of those choices earlier on in my career. And so when I can start at the top and know that I'm here to make she or he look good. And I am so, I've got their back. I'm never going to bad mouth them. I'm I'm always going to be supportive. That helps a lot in being honest with people around you. The one converse anecdote is it'll be too easy to track back. So I'm not going to say which job it was, but I I worked at a job where the boss was a screamer. (laughs) 
was just sense of urgency. He yelled a lot. I was in the inner circle, so I was always insulated from it, but I would watch this person yell at a lot of other people when they weren't kind of getting the job done. And it was their leadership tactic to create urgency. Very nice person, actually a very intelligent person, got a lot of stuff done, but really created urgency by yelling at people. And I remember these moments around honesty because folks would sort of ask me, do I have to go to that happy hour to be able to rise? Do I have to play on that kind of baseball team to kind of get ahead? Do I have to do this? And I think the answer is always, no, you don't. Believe in yourself. Believe in the value that you have. Believe in kind of what you're contributing and don't ever show up to those things. <laughs> moved up kind of very quickly in that organization. And I never went to those happy hours. I never went to the baseball softball team practices. And I just kind of believed enough in myself that I wasn't going to play those games. So I don't know if I'm exactly answering the question, but I think follow the leader and make sure that you always can really respect that leader. And that just enables you to be really honest when things are going wrong and really honest when things are going you know, as you think they should. And that same level of honesty, hopefully would be reflected in the leader that would want you to be candid and would want to know if something's going wrong. My first day of work here I send a note out to staff just sort of saying, I've got a couple of rules in terms of how I like to work. I've got a little bit of an Angie code. And the number one thing is I don't want to be surprised. Just be honest with me. I'm a big girl. I can take any news, good, bad, or ugly, but please don't surprise me. You know, I, I talked about don't give me just problems. Give me some solutions. I talked about being really respectful to folks. Again, that second grade sense that I really dislike arrogant people. And the fourth piece was, you got to listen. You got to listen in every corner. I'm not going to be a hierarchical leader that I only listen to the people that are immediately around me. And so again, I think being honest and as all of you guys enter into leadership roles, again, what that looks like if it's running an organization or working on a team or leading a group of peers, thinking about your code. I think is really helpful. People can be honest with you when they know what you're about. They'll know, you know, my staff knows, I know you don't like surprises. So I'm going to tell you this might be something that's percolating and that's like super valuable. And so maybe you ask your new boss or manager, what's your code? What are the things that are like sacred to you? What are the things that are really important to you? And then you, as you all progress in your, I mean, you guys are all just going to be awesome leaders. I'm going to be working for you one day, not soon. Well, actually, I think I already do work for you. <laughs> that I think about it. It's just very important to sort of, you know, ask, what do you want? What do you expect? What's your code? Absolutely. That's a great piece of advice. So when we think of the dean role, right, it's, there's so many aspects to it. You will have the internal faculty facing external outside of the university and even outside of SPS, student facing as well. So actually from another one of our students, Alvin, he wants to know, based on your experience, what advice you might have for focusing while still trying to balance multiple things and doing it well. When you figure that out, let me know. <laughs> My snarky answer is coffee and late nights and constantly kind of being a warrior. I think I have a worry gene. The real answer is priorities. I struggle with this, to be honest. So I try to set, again, what do I care about? I care about jobs. I care about choice filled lives for you. I care about really making sure that you all are prepared when you leave and when you graduate for the world of work that you're going to be immediately catapulted into and the world that's going to exist in five years. So those are my priorities. So I will kind of every day of the week, choose things that support that. Where I struggle is I love partnerships. I love connecting with people. I love connecting dots. I love trying out new things. Teresa and Sue probably are, are laughing because 
I'm throwing them a million ideas because I just want to do more so that make sure that we're student ready at SPS. And so I struggle with that, but I think at least knowing your, your, again, sometimes you'll hear, know your North Star, know your vision, know your value proposition, all fancy words to say the same thing. I've set the priority to say what we are about at the School of SPS is we teach the workforce of today and tomorrow. And I will prioritize every day of the week things that do that. Could I prioritize being a school where everything that we do connects back to sustainability, or I prioritize being a school where everything that we do connects back to our immediate community. I care about those things, but I'll always care about those things in relationship to jobs and careers. I gave some money to support sustainability internships through the Wasserman Center grants. So like that's my paying homage to, I care about sustainability but I care about jobs. So I'll care about someone who wants to have a job in sustainability. I deeply care about our immediate kind of community here in New York City in the five boroughs. And I care about jobs. And so I've asked Sitlali Castro, who runs our Aspire Network and high school programs, to help me think about how we could have more high school academy career exploration programs for high schoolers in the five boroughs. And so again, trying to always connect back to the thing that you care about feels like the way that I at least try to reconcile and kind of manage all of the incoming that arrives in my inbox every day. I apply that every day as well. That's that's very true. You mentioned readiness, right? And so how SPS specializes in student readiness for the professional world, but that's also on us as students as well. So are there any books or podcasts that you have consumed on leadership or other topics that you would highly recommend for those attending the session? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Looking at my, my bookshelf, I've got a couple ones. The first is, it's called The Four Disciplines of Execution, Performance Management Book for Disciplines of Execution. It's about dashboards. It's about accountability. It's about transparency. And it's about really focusing in on letting people know what matters to you and then having visible progress or being able to make visible progress and talk about visible progress where everyone can kind of be totally excited about what's happening. So that's the first book. You know what? I'm going to give a book promo for one of our faculty in the Center for Global Affairs. I just finished reading his book, Christian Bush, The Serendipity Mindset. It's a really fun one. And again, I think the thesis behind the book is opportunity favors the prepared. And that kind of being prepared is also about being open, being inquisitive, being a listener, keeping your eyes really wide open to kind of accept information, accept points of points of view, accept opportunities that might seem really weird and disconnected, but really, if you're able to kind of grab them and capture them and connect the dots, that to me is really interesting. Read that because he's one of our awesome faculty members. He's your next speaker, but I found that to be really interesting. There are two books that kind of inspired me to kind of take on this work kind of after college. So one was Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. The other one is Nickel and Dime by Barbara Ehrenreich. And really talking about social capital, talking about what it means to kind of be a really hard worker, follow all the rules, but not be able to get kind of economically where you want to be. Long way to say, there's leadership books that are all good and fancy and will teach you things. And then there's like, again, just being human and hearing stories about how, again, it was in grad school, 2000 for me, when Barbara Ehrenreich wrote this book, Nickel and Dime, it was like, how in America, the land of opportunity, can you have three part-time jobs and still be on food stamps when you can't make ends meet? And so again, the humanness of understanding what's the problem in the world that you want to solve, or at least be part of the solution. And like, that was the moment where I was trying to figure out what to do in grad school. And I was like, bingo. That is it. I'm going to work on this American dream. I'm first-generation American. My parents absolutely came to this country for it. If the American dream is dying, I'm going to work like heck 
to make sure that that's not going to be on the extent list. That to me would be, I, I generalize it to say, find a thing you're passionate about. Find the thing that just like literally keeps you up at night and read those books, read those stories, find those people, meet those people. And I think you kind of can't go wrong if you know there's just something that gets you really jazzed and that you don't forget those things that really ground you. Absolutely. I love that. You know, you reminded me when you were mentioning about opportunity favors the prepared. I went to a personal tidbit here. I went to the John Legend concert not too long ago. And one of his like in-between songs was there's no such thing as luck. Luck is really when opportunity meets preparedness. So if you say it, and if John Lennon says it, it must be true. <laughs> but <Love it. laughs> what legacy would you like to be known for? So a couple of things. I, you know, I, I'm sure maybe others read our chairman of the NYU trustees, Bill Berkeley, a lovely man, a really generous man. I mean, he credits his start by really kind of coming to NYU and, and it opened up a world that he wasn't going to have access to without kind of NYU. And so he's incredibly generous. He gave a $50 million pool of scholarships to Stern to be able to help more people kind of take on that education. So what do I think about? I got a little bit jealous when I saw that. And I was like, what about us? Come on. And so a couple of legacy points. You're adult, so I can say, I want a big ass scholarship fund here to make sure that we can have as diverse a student population. And make no mistake, diversity comes in every form, economic diversity, where you went kind of from an educational perspective, where your background is, race, ethnicity, gender, country, zip code, and everything. And so I want, I was just having a conversation with Roberto, Teresa, and I were where we have a lot of international students. Awesome. And do we have enough economic diversity in our international students and making sure that we really think about what that looks like. So I want a, a big ass scholarship that's like endowed, that's huge. That's like eight, nine figures, really, truly. I don't think that that's actually crazy or unattainable, but I would love over the next 10 year period to be able to have a, a pool like that, where we really could be a place that offers free education. If the spectrum is from free to something that we can do that. I think the second piece is, I think that we are invaluable. I mean, I think we are an absolutely invaluable partner to, to let's say corporate America, folks who are well healed in terms of, you know, they benefit from being in New York City. And I think that I would love to have, you know, us to be the fill in the blank school of professional studies, the ex family school of professional studies. I think we are invaluable. I think that we need to kind of make sure that folks who benefit from all of the amazing students and grads and alumni that come out of the school have some pay it forward and are able to kind of really endow our school. And again, it's not just about the money. It's about being choice filled, right? If we were able to kind of get that level of endowment, I could have an innovation fund to spur on student enterprises and startups. I could have an innovation fund for faculty to do more research. I could have an innovation fund to really focus on, on new opportunities and challenge prizes to kind of launch moonshot ideas for our smart students, our smart alumni, our smart faculty to have ideas that could change the world. That's what I would do if I were able to kind of get a real endowment in our school. We could have more faculty members, more visiting faculty, more executive in residences where we could actually have kind of not only our full-time faculty traveling and roving stream of change makers and leaders globally who would want to take a pit stop with us for a year or two at SPS to teach our students, to teach our faculty, to teach our staff what's going on in the world. So those are our two big things. I'm 
kind of hell bent on getting because I, I just think we're overdue for them. And so those are two legacy things that are visible that you could touch that you'd know that we are not only making impact in the world because we already are making impact in the world, but that others understand it and value it. I think the third piece is just this whole notion on the student experience and it's elusive and people keep asking me, what does that mean, Angie? And I don't know exactly what that means, but I know that we'll know it when we feel it, right? Our students, you, who I think are largely having a great experience talk about it. And there's a word of mouth and a buzz around SPS that that's a place where we used, you know, AR, VR simulations in the classroom to do X. That's a place that got me four different internships in my first two years. That's a place that enabled me to build my network with X. It's a place that from a student experience, I had a lot of time to spend and cultivate kind of a network of students that were super diverse from me. And so I think that that student experience piece, again, this is where I'll, I'll take the card that I'm here four months in the job. So I don't have all the answers, but I think that that's what has made us really great. And I think that higher ed is changing. Expectations are changing. Students are changing. And so I don't want to just keep up. I want to be able to be kind of front of the pack in terms of what that looks like. And so again, a little elusive, but that's going to be a legacy piece. That's just like part of the fabric that everyone experiences. If I could do one, two or three, hopefully all three of those things, I would be extremely proud. And I could tell my kids that they should be proud of their mama, but they already are proud of their mama. Again, say it or write it down and make it happen. And I, I think I want to be able to start talking more about these things so that, you know, all of us can really start to think about what that could mean and kind of what it would look like. Absolutely. I don't think it's a matter of if, I think it's a matter of when. So continue to speak it into existence. I am sure it will happen. Keeping an eye on the time here, but I do want to end on this one last thing. So of course we are still in spirit week, as we all know, we had activities all throughout the week and we will continue to have events through Sunday specifically for this. As you know, Dean Angie, the theme is igniting the spark in you, igniting the spark in the SPS community. And that is the theme for the entire week. So what does that mean to you? What is igniting the spark trigger for you? What does ignite the spark mean for me? Um, <laughs> You know what? Here's my challenge to all of you. Every week, I want uh, each of you to have a conversation with someone who you just wouldn't, you know, ignite a spark, have a conversation, meet someone, introduce yourself to someone, whether it's a classmate, whether it's a faculty member, whether it's someone on staff. Really, every week, folks should be igniting new sparks and new connections with people. That's what it means to me. I love that. As someone just wrote in our chat, opportunity favorites the bold. Yes. That's a good one too. That goes, that goes along with what you just said. Well, thank you so much for sharing close to an hour of your time with us. Before My we pleasure. go, what is the best way for attendees to connect with you? This is your shameless plug time. Absolutely. There's 40 of you. And so again, I'm not telling anything. I'm sure I'm going to make Sue and Teresa cringe. Here is my direct email. Oh, wow. Go for it. Just email. <laughs> Right. People have said to me, they're like, oh, you're so busy. You don't have time for me. And I'm like, hello, that's management. My job is to meet with people. My job is to talk to people. My job is to listen to people. So my job here, again, we already established, I work for all of you. Email me. And I'm just excited. Hopefully I'll see some of you or many of you at the coffee chat next week, but it's incredibly important for me to be listening to you. And I think Teresa and Sue and the rest of the team, Tabitha and others that I've seen, sorry, I don't have everyone on my kind of screen. I know that I suspect the whole team is here. 
we're here for you. And we, we can only do our job if we're listening and if you're talking, right? So it's easy to listen. Maybe it's kind of a bigger step to kind of come forward and tell us, but can't read minds, have not developed that skill yet. Really important for you guys to tell us what's going on. And again, not always just the problems. If, if there's something that's going on, that's great that you wish there were more of, or just someone who like, we need to show some gratitude towards because they're doing great work. Let us know that. I think I scared some people because I was like poking my head into offices, but I can't know everything that's going on in the school. And so it's really important for folks to talk. Thank you, Dean Angie, once again. Thank you to everyone who has attended and joined us for this conversation. Thanks, Catalina. Take care, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you to Dean Angie Cummins. The SBS Replay podcast is produced by the students of the NYU SBS Student Council with Ali Weaver, Ariana Olivas, Anna Zhao, Chien Zhao, Christine Long, Evelyn Tai, Jacarla Mitchell, Jessica Blodgett, Kyle Romkin, Megan Vanesto, Martin Ma, Maya Kwok, Sanjana Benmutsa, Sarah Maruyama, Tatan Gangwal, Ding Nguyen, Varsha Raghavan. Special thanks to the NYU SBS Office of Student Life. Follow us on Instagram at SBSUSC and at SBSGSC and on LinkedIn at NYU SBS Student Council for more updates and content. Thank you so much for listening and see you on the next episode.